Good morning, everyone. We are ending our series on Nehemiah this morning. It's been an incredible journey. I personally have enjoyed this book more than I've ever because I obviously have not studied it as much. But uh, can I see those of you in life groups, have you found it beneficial to where you are at uh, in your lives? It's an incredible portion of scripture and I encourage you if you have any heard the, the last little bits of it, go back. We've got our podcasts online. They're there for you to listen to. It really is an amazing portion. So I'm so excited about this morning. There's a lot to get through and I don't want to do it in, in too long a time. So I'm going to get going. I'm going to do a quick recap on where we've been. And there are two portions to the book of Nehemiah. The first portion from chapter 1 to 7 is the rebuilding of the wall. And we read about Nehemiah, how he approached the king of Persia. He asked for permission if he could go back to his homeland and help with the rebuilding of the walls. He gathered the people, he assessed the the rubble of the, the city, and he organized the people to work towards rebuilding the wall of, of Jerusalem. But what, when he was there, he didn't, he, he realized that it wasn't just a rebuilding of the wall that he wanted, to, he needed to get done. He needed to reform the people. There was an internal battle within the city and within the hearts of the people. And Pierre preached on chapter eight last week about how Ezra read the word of, of God, the law, and how the people responded by reforming their lives. They repented. Chapter 9 talks about how they confessed their sins. And then Nehemiah works with these people and he implements some policies. He puts leaders in place. He sets the Levites uh, in their place to, to lead the people spiritually. And then they have this massive celebration of, and they dedicate the wall. Isn't that an incredible story? His job is done. Now, There's one more chapter left in this book, chapter 13. You would think that this chapter is going to end with an incredible climax of the people of God building on what has already happened. It doesn't happen. What do we find in chapter 13? The people backslide. They go back to their old sinful habits. I was thinking of the kind of movies that I I really enjoy. I love movies that have a good ending, but a bit of a twist. And I watched a movie the other day. I'm not going to say what it is because I might ruin it for you. And this movie was incredible. One of the most, you know, soul-gripping, emotional movies that I've ever watched. You know, it's based on a true story. I've limited it down to a few, few movies now. And the main character dies in the end. And I was like, wow, that, that's not good. It was based on a true story, so they couldn't change the script. But here we are in Nehemiah. We've got this incredible story that's happened. You know, people's lives have been changed. The wall is rebuilt, and something bad happens. So, yeah, so what happens between Nehemiah 12 and 13 is Nehemiah's job is done. He goes back to the king of Persia and he serves there. We don't know how long it's for, but it it must have been for a year or or a couple of years. And 
he gets to hear about what happens in Jerusalem. He hears that the people have now backslid and he needs to, to get back to the city. And what I want to do before we read in chapter 13 is actually have a quick look at the promises that the people of God committed to in chapter 10. So I want you read that with me. Let's read together. Nehemiah 10 verse 28 to 32. This was the time when Ezra had read the law. He stirred people's hearts. They confessed their sins and they made an agreement with God and with one another. Have you guys done that as a life group? Sat around together, take, taking out a piece of paper and just saying, guys, we're going to make an agreement with one another. This is how we're going to live our lives. This is what they did. So verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, sons, daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers. So you get the picture. All of these people have come together to make an agreement. Brothers and nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do, to observe the word and to do the word, all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So the first pledge they made was to submit to God's word. And that speaks about worship for me. They made a dedication in their hearts. Lord, you will be the one that I worship alone. You are, are number one in my life. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. The second commitment that they made was to separate themselves from the world. And this for me talks about relationships. They made a decision as a, as a as a nation, not to intermarriage with pagan people. They wanted to protect their faith. They wanted to protect their relationships. Verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. We will forego the crops and the seventh year and the, the exaction of every debt. The third commitment that they made was to, was to keep the Sabbath, was to respect the Sabbath. And that for me speaks about time. How do you manage the time in your life? What do you give your time to? Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. And the fourth agreement that they made was to support God's work and to provide for the house of God. That speaks about finances. Can you see the commitments that these people have made? Their worship, their relationships, their time, and their finances. Those are commitments that they made to God. They signed, and in, in, in their mind, it lists all the people that were there, and that signed. There were a couple of them. They agreed, guys, we are going to live this out together. We're going to encourage each other. This is how we want to live our lives. Sadly, by the time that Nehemiah returned, when he came back to Jerusalem, all of these promises were broken. In chapter 12, verse 43, 
just before Nehemiah left, listen to what it says. It said, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is what the state of the city was. So much joy that people could hear the cries coming from the city. So we're going to read uh, chapter 13. And I thought to not bore you with my voice, I've uh, requested the help of YouTube and I've been able to get an audio of Nehemiah 13. It is a dramatized version. I laughed at that. I had two options, dramatized or non-dramatized. I'm guessing the non-dramatized is very robotic. I promised to give you a dramatized preach this morning. So I want you to turn to chapter 13. It's from the message version. And it's five minutes long, so please don't nod off. Let's concentrate. Let's read together. Chapter 13. Also on that same day, there was a reading from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. It was found written there that no Ammonite or Moabite was permitted to enter the congregation of God because they hadn't welcomed the people of Israel with food and drink. They even hired Balaam to work against them by cursing them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the reading of the Revelation, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Sometime before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the temple of God. He was close to Tobiah and had made available to him a large storeroom that had been used to store grain offerings, incense, worship vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil for the Levites, singers, and security guards, and the offerings for the priests. When this was going on, I wasn't there in Jerusalem, in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had traveled back to the king. But later, I asked for his permission to leave again. I arrived in Jerusalem and learned of the wrong that Elishab had done in turning over to him a room in the courts of the temple of God. I was angry, really angry, and threw everything in the room out into the street, all of Tobiah's stuff. Then, I ordered that they ceremonially cleanse the room. Only then did I put back the worship vessels of the temple of God, along with the grain offerings and the incense. And then I learned that the Levites hadn't been given their regular food allotments. So the Levites and singers who led the services of worship had all left and gone back to their farms. I called the officials on the carpet. Why has the temple of God been abandoned? I got everyone back again and put them back on their jobs so that all Judah was again bringing in the tithe of grain, wine, and oil to the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms. I made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Madaniah, their right-hand man. These men had a reputation for honesty and hard work. They were responsible for distributing the rations to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, for this. Don't ever forget the devoted work I have done for the temple of God and its worship. During those days, while back in Judah, I also noticed that people treaded wine presses, brought in sacks of grain, and loaded up their donkeys on the Sabbath. They brought wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of stuff to sell on the Sabbath. So I spoke up and warned them about selling food on that day. Tyrians living there brought in fish and whatever else, selling it to Judeans, in Jerusalem, mind you, on the Sabbath. I confronted the leaders of Judah. What's going on here? This evil profaning the Sabbath. Isn't this exactly what your ancestors did? And because of it, didn't God bring down on us in this city all this misery? And here you are adding to it, accumulating more wrath on Jerusalem by profaning the Sabbath. 
as the gates of Jerusalem were darkened by the shadows of the approaching Sabbath, I ordered the doors shut and not to be opened until the Sabbath was over. I placed some of my servants at the gates to make sure that nothing to be sold would get in on the Sabbath day. Traders and dealers in various goods camped outside the gates once or twice, but I took them to task. I said, You have no business camping out here by the wall. If I find you here again, I'll use force to drive you off. And that did it. They didn't come back on the Sabbath. Then I directed the Levites to ceremonially cleanse themselves and take over as guards at the gates to keep the sanctity of the Sabbath day. Remember me also for this, my God. Treat me with mercy according to your great and steadfast love. Also in those days, I saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half the children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. All they knew was the language of Ashdod or some other tongue. So I took those men to task, gave them a piece of my mind, even slapped some of them and jerked them by the hair. I made them swear to God, don't marry your daughters to their sons, and don't let their daughters marry your sons, and don't you yourselves marry them. Didn't Solomon, the king of Israel, sin because of women just like these? Even though there was no king quite like him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel, foreign women were his downfall. Do you call this obedience? Engaging in this extensive evil, showing yourselves faithless to God by marrying foreign wives? One of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. I drove him out of my presence. Remember them, O oh my God, how they defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and Levites. All in all, I cleansed them from everything foreign. I organized the orders of service for the priests and Levites so that each man knew his job. I arranged for a regular supply of altar wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Father, we pray that your word would speak to us today. Lord, this all happened 430 years before Christ, but we know we can apply it to our lives. Encourage us today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in each individual's heart as to where we are at. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do is look at those four promises that, that the Israelites broke. And the first one was the submission promise. The promises of chapter 10, they began with an affirmation of loyalty to God. They started off by, by promising to obey God's word. When we get to chapter 13 and in verse 1, it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. I just want to say that, that on that day wasn't one day after they dedicated the, the temple, uh, dedicated the, the walls. It was in the period where Nehemiah was back with the Persian king. So it was a, a year or two. And here they are reading the book of Moses. Now, I think what happened is that in that period where Nehemiah was away, people started to disregard uh, the word of God. We read in chapter 8 about how Ezra went public and he spoke the word out to the people. They read it for a quarter of the day. They prayed for a quarter of the day. They confessed their sins for a quarter of the day. I think some people got a bit lazy and they just thought, do we have to do this? And perhaps they started to slowly just, hey guys, we're canceling Wednesday's meeting. We'll see you on Sunday. Maybe they canceled the weekly Sunday meeting and it 
It became once every two weeks. I think that that's what happened. They disregarded the reading of the word. And Nehemiah comes back and I think he, he, under, he sees this and he's like, guys, what happened here? When I left, we were reading the Bible. We're reading the word daily. Why has this stopped? And he reintroduced the reading of the word. And here, it's speaking to the people. They, it goes on to say, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So the portion of scripture for that day, the reading was Deuteronomy 23 verse 3, which says, do not let the Ammonites or Moabites in the assembly of God. This didn't mean that the foreigners couldn't join their time of worship, but what it meant was they couldn't get into the culture of the Jewish nation through marriage and that. They didn't want to, uh, to, to water down their faith or their belief in God with foreign beliefs coming in. That's what he was saying. We read in this portion of scripture that there was a gentleman who lived in one of the chambers of the temple. What was his name? Tobiah. He was an Ammonite. So Tobiah was one of the enemies of Jerusalem. He was the guy who was Nehemiah's thorn in the side. He was trying to stop the Israelites from rebuilding the wall and he gave Nehemiah an incredibly hard time. The high priest had given him a room in the temple. We're going to look a little bit more into that when we look at the next point. But it goes on to say that Tobiah was related to the high priest. He was related to Elishab. And commentaries say that they think it was through marriage and uh, there was a relationship there. So this Ammonite, this foreigner was allowed to go right into where they worshipped God. How could they have allowed this to happen? I think this must have happened because they stopped reading the word of God. They forgot as to how these foreigners had given them such a hard time when they first of all entered into the promised land. How did they respond? In verse three, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. The Israelites had neglected to observe and to do the law of God. That's what was said in, in chapter 10 where they made those commitments. They had stopped reading the word of God. They had broken that submission promise of making God their number one priority. They had started to turn their worship to other areas and this brought idolatry into the nation. The second promise that they broke was the separation promise. Because they broke their promise to submit to God's word, they did not live separately from the surrounding nations. So this first separation, as I've just mentioned, that they broke was to allow a pagan unbeliever into the temple. Let's read verse four. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, 
prepared for to buy a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Nehemiah was horrified that the high priest had acted in this way. And he didn't just let Tobiah, an enemy, into the city. He gave him a room in, in the temple. One of Eliashib's relatives, his grandson actually, was married to Sanballat's daughter. Sanballat was big buddies with Tobiah. So I can imagine Tobiah and Sanballat having a round of golf, trying to plot their way back into the city and how to disrupt God's plans. Tobiah said, hey, listen, uh, Eliashib's got this grandson. You can marry your daughter. They must probably work to plan out. So Tobiah and Sanballat, the two enemies of the Israelites, were now living in the city and in the temple. Nehemiah saw this act as, as disregard for God's a word and a blatant act of disobedience. How did he respond? He had a drastic response. Listen to what it says in verse eight. And I was very angry. I wasn't just angry. I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back they're the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and frankincense. He threw him out of the street. He responded with a bit of aggression. This reminds me of Jesus when he went into the temple and he saw how people were misusing the, the space to not worship God, but to make a profit from their businesses. He responded quite severely, tipping over tables, getting some whips out, Nehemiah responded in the same way. He had a passion to get rid of this enemy that was in the temple of God. And folks, as we've been speaking about being a city within a city, are there things in our town and in our region that are not right? Are there things where the enemy has just slipped in and done it so quietly and slowly that we've disregarded it? I was... I was so encouraged by a friend who a couple of months ago responded to an ad campaign that a retail store did for underwear. And it wasn't just, you know, your normal underwear uh, advertising. It was quite explicit in the way that these bodies were displayed across uh, our retail stores. And they responded in a way that Nehemiah would have responded, I think. He would have said, take that down. I don't want my children to see that. Have, do we have that heart for our community? Is there stuff that we can respond to righteously? He, he gave an order to have the rooms cleaned. He wanted every trace of Tobiah, Tobiah's presence removed. He must have got a whole bunch of jick and just polished that place. I don't even want to smell this guy in here. You know, Remove him. Remove him from this place. Matthew Henry, he writes in his commentary, he says, see the benefit of publicly reading the word of God. When it is duly attended to, it discovers to us sin, good and evil, and shows wherein we have erred. We profit when we are thus wrought upon to separate from evil. 
Those that would drive sin out of their hearts, the living temples must throw out its household stuff and all the provision made for it. Take away all things that are the food and fuel of lust. This is really to mortify it. Matthew Henry is taking this portion of scripture from Nehemiah and he's comparing it to our lives as living temples. Is there, there, I try to picture it in my mind, but perhaps there are little rooms in our bodies where we have given the enemy a place to stay. And we've quietly just, just come sneak in your back door. Nobody will know. You just, yeah, I'm going to house you here. And it, whatever it is, through what we see or what we give attention to in our sight or what we hear to, perhaps there's a little door in our heart where we, we, we've made a decision not to forgive this person because they, I can justify why they don't need my forgiveness because they hurt me. But we have these rooms in our lives where the enemy has taken residence. We've got to allow Jesus to come into those rooms, to throw out the household furniture, not just to get it out, but to cleanse it. And Matthew Henry goes on to say, he said, when sin is cast out of the heart by repentance, let the blood of Christ be applied to it by faith. Let it wash that room. Then it then let it be furnished with the grace of God's spirit for every good work. Isn't that beautiful? Allow Jesus to come into every room of your life. The second separation promise that they broke was they allowed for mixed marriages. In verse 10, uh, in, in chapter 10, verse 30, they said, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he saw that the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. He also heard the kids speaking in a foreign language. The children were taught a foreign language. That meant they would not have been able to participate in the public gatherings of worship because they wouldn't have been able to understand the native language. Can you see how the sin of the people led to the damaging of their home and their family lifestyle? How did Nehemiah respond? I love this part. I rebuked them. I cursed and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Brian, won't you come here? I just want to demonstrate. Okay, no, right, no, not Brian. But I, I read it again and again. I'm like, did he, did he really pull out people's hair? Can you imagine how passionate, passionate he was? It's like, if you go out with that girl, I will beat you. You know? I'm, I have the right as a father to speak to my children like this. I will beat you. I will rip the hair out of your head. That's passion. You know, he could see the destruction of the relationships that we're having, having here. By the way, we're starting a parenting course next week. Nehemiah's, <laughs> Nehemiah's Guide to Raising Great Kids. And, uh, but I just... 
I just thought it, it's quite intense. But Nehemiah realized that it had got the country into trouble before. The wisest king of all, Solomon, had fallen into lust with pagan women. And what happened? It, it led the nation to be taken into captivity. Nehemiah's grandparents were part of that group. He did not want to see that happen again to his nation. Please understand, God is not saying that it, it was a, a, a marrying of mixed races, but it, it was a people of other faith. God isn't against mixed race marriage, but he's against mixed faith marriages. But that's a whole nother sermon. And if I want to apply this to my life, yeah, today, now, how, how do I, what can I take from it? The separation from pagan relationships. It talks to me about how do I view my relationships. Michelle and I, we say to our kids all the time, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Your friends play such an important part in your life. But it all started with a desire for self. There must have been lustful thoughts and desires within the men of Judah. And they were like, hey, these Moab girls look fantastic. You know, let's make a plan. And then what did it lead to? It led to destruction in the nation. The third promise that they, that they broke was the support promise. In chapter 10, verse 39, they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. What did Nehemiah find when he came back? In chapter 13, verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his fields. So I confronted the officials and he said, why is the house of God forsaken? So I think it was just a cause and effect here. They stopped reading the word of God and then they didn't hear that maybe they should be giving their tithe to, into the storehouse so they stopped doing that and they further uh, didn't read the word so they further didn't give much to the storehouse. Then there wasn't a lot of stuff to keep in the rooms and then Eliashib said, hey, listen, Tobiah, the guys are not giving that much anymore and this, this room's collecting dust. You can move in and you can reside in the chamber of the temple. Can you see how it just so destructive in, in all areas? They had stopped bringing their tithes and offerings. Nehemiah had to do some tough talking again. He set up a system so that they could once again put God first in their finances. And this is what I'm, the point that I'm trying to make. We, when we move away from God, one of the areas that where we stop giving is to the work of God. Jesus said, show me your heart and I'll show, show you where your treasure is. What, what is it that we give our lives to? Is, are we here to get a great job, get a good salary, to build a good inheritance for our kids and to, to live a, a great life, you know, looking after self. No, God wants us to take the resources that we have, our time, our talents, our resources, our finances, and, and help build the kingdom of God. We will not advance the kingdom of God in our spare time and with our spare cash. We need to be deliberate in how we, we are generous in that. Nehemiah stationed the officials at their posts 
In verse 12, we read about how the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil came back into the storerooms. We, we read about a renewed commitment to put God first in their finances. And then he appointed four men, in verse 13, to supervise the treasury, to distribute the tithes and offerings. And interestingly, these four people were four different people, but the one thing they had in common was that they were trustworthy. And we read that in chapter 13. Are you trustworthy with what God has given to you? He will entrust you to his purposes. And folks, we say this often as a church. We are ambitious. We want to see Jesus proclaimed to everyone. We want to go to the nations. We want to see the kingdom of God expanded in, in every single way, in every vocation, in every industry. We're passionate about that. And when we come together with our resources, it gives us the ability to make that happen. And then the last promise that they broke was the Sabbath promise. In chapter 10, verse 31, they said, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. Nehemiah discovered that the people were not only doing business on the Sabbath, but they were treating it as another day of the week. They had secularized the Sabbath. The leaders allowed the people to operate their shops seven days a week. Um, and once again, Nehemiah responded firmly. First, he rebuked the Jews who were working and selling on the Sabbath. He made them stop. I can imagine him going to them. They've seen him rip hair out. And I think he went to these business guys and he just said, stop it. And they listened to him. Secondly, he rebuked the nobles for allowing business on the Sabbath day by reminding them that the violation of the Sabbath was one of the reasons for their captivity in the first place. In verse 18, he said, didn't your forefathers do the same things? so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city. Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. The people had not heard the word regularly, so they forgot the importance of the Sabbath. And they just thought, you know, I can work an extra day. I can make a little bit extra money. I can relieve the monthly pressure. Folks, do you know that it takes faith to take a Sabbath? Because what you're saying is, Lord, I'm giving this day to you. I'm resting my body. I'm thinking about this week that has just passed by. Oh, Lord, there was an opportunity there where I could have ministered to someone or I, I could have responded in a better way. You, you take stock of your week. You allow the Lord to speak to you about the week ahead. So it's not just... Uh, it's not just a command that God has given. You will not do anything on the Sabbath. No, it, there's a spiritual dynamic to it. There's a physical dynamic. There's a social dynamic. The fact that we come together here together on a Sunday, this is a witness to the rest of the world that we serve God and that we place him in the number one spot of our life. We, as to the best of our ability, we, as the Pharaohs, do not make any other appointments for a Sunday morning. We come together as a family to church. And I know there's stuff that happens in the Argus races and, you know, but for as much as we can, we love coming together here as a family to worship God. 
In demanding that the people keep their Sabbath promise, Nehemiah was emphasizing the centrality of worship, the importance of witness, and the necessity of rest. So to conclude and to summarize what I have said this morning, how do I apply these four areas to my life? The submission promise. As I've mentioned to you, that for me is, is the worship in your life. Who takes that number one spot in your life? Do you love the word of God? When I was on campus, someone made a statement, which I'll never forget. They said, read your Bible as if your life depends upon it, because it does. This should be a daily reading, and not just a reading, a quick response to a verse of the day, as, as Pierre mentioned last week. It's studying this. It's, it's digging into it. You know, when you open your Bible, it opens your life up. When you look into the Bible, it looks into you. It's like a mirror, you know? You see the reflection of how God wants you to, to live your life. Let's not break the submission promise, the separation promise, your relationships. Do not compromise. Do not get cozy with compromise. You know, be, be deliberate in protecting your relationships. The support promise. Be generous with what God has entrusted you to. The Sabbath promise. Keep to the rhythm of life that God has created and protect your Sabbath. Your Sabbath might not be on a Sunday because some people do need to, to work, but to the best of your ability to try and grab that moment in the week where you can focus your life afresh. You will find refreshment, nourishment, fellowship, and guidance for the week ahead. And then the final point that I want to end with, and as we end this, this book, book on Nehemiah, is actually responding to the final verse in verse 31. Nehemiah says the following, remember me with favor, oh my God. We started this sermon series speaking about how Nehemiah required so much of his time to be put to prayer and to fasting. None of what had happened up until this point would have been possible if he had not remained connected to God. He ends this story with a prayer back to God and he actually prays it three times before the end of chapter 13. Remember me with favor, oh my God. And he wasn't trying to get rewards from God based on his achievements. He could have actually put a massive plaque up at the entrance of the city saying this wall dedicated to Nehemiah in the year rebuilt, saved a nation. No, he was so passionate about God's purposes for his city and for his generation that he did whatever it required because he knew he had fulfilled the call of God upon his life. Amen.